So today's episode is all about the history of cannabis. We have known that cannabis is medicine for 10,000 years. And I have 15 minutes to share that history with you. You don't want to miss it because if you are interested in cannabis at all, the history is so important. And it also is a good place for you to learn how to advocate for yourself and for any other individuals that want to use cannabis as medicine. In 1976, just 42 years ago, Robert C. Randall became the first legal medical marijuana patient. But cannabis use can be found dating back to 3250 BC in Egypt when the cannabis plant was first used for ceremonial, medicinal, and industrial purposes. There is even evidence to suggest that earlier use is possible based on the findings of a 10,200-year-old clay jar of dried cannabis seeds that was excavated in Japan on the island of Okinoshima. That's 10,000 years ago. The first written accounts of cannabis use as medicine were found in ancient China. Chinese medical uses and traditions covered over 100 medical conditions that could be treated with cannabis. When the Mayflower came to the New World, and I'll put New World in quotes, it brought with it the cannabis plant. And the plant was used for hemp fiber, uh, used for ropes, sails, and textiles. In 1833, Dr. William O'Shanassi, and hopefully I'm saying that right, went to India and he saw cannabis used to treat rabies, cholera, and convulsions. He brought cannabis back to Europe, and through way of Europe, it found its way to the United States. Eventually, the U.S. began to adopt cannabis medicine, and at the turn of the 20th century, there were over 2,000 preparations of the plant available to treat an array of ailments. So your doctor can prescribe this plant to you. You can have it in a tincture. That was one of the things that uh, was popular then, um, and it was available to you. From 1840 to 1900, there were actual numerous reports of the medical benefits of cannabis and it had been published in various medical research publications. And during the early 1930s is really when things started to shift as it relates to cannabis. A good example of this is seen in a 1931 article published in Time magazine, and I quote, Marijuana is a variety of hemp weed, cannabis sativa, long common in Mexico, lately becoming common in the U.S. Its leaves can be dried, ground, and rolled into cigarettes, which are bootlegged under the name of Muggles, Reefers, or Mary Warners. Smoking of marijuana, cigarettes, produces a state of intoxication similar to that induced by alcohol. It stimulates playfulness, suppresses fear. Thousands are smoked in Harlem, in New Orleans, in other nightlife centers. In New Orleans, many a school child is said to be an addict. Prison authorities find muggle smuggling a perplexing problem. In 1936, the movie Reefer Madness came out to incite fear about the dangers of using cannabis. So during this time, Harry Anslinger, who is the director of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, he creates this campaign demonizing cannabis. Uh, this campaign depicts cannabis as a problem of the black community. They show jazz musicians and artists that are consuming cannabis and how it's making them, you know, violent and angry and causing them to be promiscuous and showing a lot of white women that were falling for, you know, falling in lust for these jazz musicians because they were also consuming marijuana with them. Um, it also made it a problem of the Mexican community, specifically by creating this propaganda that showed that marijuana was coming from Mexico. They gave it this name, marijuana, uh, marijuana, to kind of give it this Mexican or Hispanic 
kind of connotation or sound to it. Um, and really, this is a, a huge turning point for cannabis um, at this time, because before this, it was considered medicine. And now we've created this uh, demonization of this plant and demonizing the people who are using it and consuming it. Hope you guys are keeping with me because we're in 1937 and I feel angry. So here we go. So this rhetoric gave way to the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937. This act was used to impose tax on anyone who was dealing in marijuana and to safeguard the revenue from marijuana sales. Marijuana, as it became known, was a dangerous narcotic and no longer seen as a effective or safe medicine. An important thing to note at this time is that during this time, there's a huge, there's huge business in timber and timber was used for building things and for creating uh, paper products. Uh, part of the Marijuana Tax Act was also created to impose a tax that would affect the hemp industry. Um, and if you're new to hemp and uh, this whole cannabis movement, that hemp is a, uh, a variety of cannabis that grows for uh, industrial purposes. It's very tall, it has very long stalks, and it is considered the strongest fiber on the planet. So at this time, that timber is so important and the wealthiest men in the United States have invested heavily in synthetic fiber, nylons, and in this tim in timber. And now hemp is competing with those textiles uh, because it's it's cheaper to produce and you can produce it abundantly. So that there, there's always a, you know, there, there, you've got to look at both sides of this picture here. It's not just the, the drug that's vilified. There's also this economic part of it and how, you know, money rules the world and basically follow the money. So Marijuana Tax Act was a two-sided thing. It was for racial and economic purpose as the act resulted in demonizing cannabis and creating this mass hysteria or this reefer madness campaign. Through this campaign, Harry Anslinger was able to brainwash the entire country to believe cannabis was actually the devil's weed. The propaganda that he used showing images of violent behavior and just creating this rhetoric that cannabis was a gateway drug to harder drugs like heroin and morphine. In the first full year after the Marijuana Tax Act was passed, black people were about three times more likely to be arrested for violating narcotic drug laws than whites, and Mexicans were nearly nine times more likely to be arrested for the same charge. All right, so I hope you guys are keeping up with me. We are now in 1964, and Dr. Rafael Mechelon and Israeli scientists, along with his colleagues, discover and isolate THC. And they find this compound on the cannabis plant, and they isolate it, and it has never. this is something that has never been done before. The year prior, they had isolated CBD, but because CBD didn't have that, those psychoactive effects, it was kind of hard to tell what CBD actually did, but with THC, when they isolated it, they were able to quickly see how the body responded to it. So he isolates this compound in the plant and he calls the, you know, he applies for a grant at the National Institute of Health in the United States that he wanted to continue his research and he was looking for funding. The National Institute of Health is like, no, thank you. We uh, are not interested in any cannabis research. Cannabis is not something that 
we use here in the United States, because at this point, it's not even for medical use, really. They said, um, you know, come back to us once you have something that is of interest or relevant. So Dr. Meshalan is like, okay, and he goes on and continues his research. A year later, the United States comes knocking. Uh, the NIH comes to Israel and they say, you know what, we want to see this THC, we want to see this work. And then they brought back 10 grams of this isolated THC that was made from this hashish uh, from in Israel. And so the U.S. used this 10 grams of isolated THC for most of the initial research that they did here, thanks to Dr. Meshalan. So pretty interesting. It should also be noted that during this time, uh, the Nixon campaign is going on. And with Nixon in the White House, he placed marijuana and a schedule as a Schedule One drug, which was one of the most restrictive category of drugs. And he placed it there temporarily, pending a review by a commission that he appointed. And this commission was called the Schaefer Commission. It was led by a Republican, Pennsylvania Governor Raymond Schaefer. And what he wanted them to do was to uh, put together some reports recommending and, and, and put forth their recommendations on uh, the status of marijuana. And so in 1972, the commission unanimously recommended decriminalizing the possession and distribution of marijuana for personal use. And they saw that there was no medical, psychological, sociological, or any other factors that really were at risk, that we were at risk of by decriminalizing marijuana. Aaron kind of focused on the fact that since the 1960s, the United States has been funding cannabis research with Dr. Meshalan and I'm sure other scientists because there are uh, lots of journals, uh, public publications that share these research discoveries and the United States has been funding them while cannabis remained a schedule one drug, which is the most restrictive category of drug um, and is considered um, on this schedule not for medical use. And then as I opened up in the beginning of the show, in 1976, glaucoma patient Robert Randall becomes the first medical marijuana patient. So how this happens is uh, Robert Randall discovers that, hey, when I smoke pot, <laughs> he basically said, when I smoke pot, it makes my vision better because he was suffering from glaucoma. And, you know, everyone thought he was crazy for finding this correlation between this plant and his glaucoma. Um, but he did, and then he found some research that showed that, yes, there has been research that showed that cannabis can help with symptoms of glaucoma. So he files a lawsuit against the DEA, the FDA, and the National Institute of Drug Abuse because in his pursuit of treatment, he starts to grow crops, um, and then he gets arrested for having those crops. In his suit, he claimed that his crops, which he had been arrested for, were for medical necessity. Robert Randall wins this lawsuit and he gains legal access to marijuana. However, the government made it almost impossible for him to have legal access to cannabis. Like he couldn't actually put his hands on cannabis plants. And he ended up filing another lawsuit in 1978. And this lawsuit is a game changer because he gained access to medical marijuana through a federal pharmacy. Robert Randall also helped um, establish a program called the Marijuana AIDS Research Service. In 1983, he started receiving calls from patients who were basically letting him know, hey, we've 
have HIV or AIDS and we've been using cannabis to help with the nausea, vomiting, and pain. So through this marijuana AIDS research service, he basically streamlines the process of applying to the federal uh, marijuana program and he creates these packets and mobilizes basically all these different communities to <laughs> apply for the medical marijuana program. And when he does this, uh, basically the program is just flooded with applications and they decide that they're going to shut the program down and only those who already had the medical marijuana cards were going to be grandfathered in, but that they were no longer accepting any more patients. And so this is going to be an important uh, piece of the story when, like I mentioned before, we do, we're we going to do a whole show just about how this affected marginalized communities. And so with the HIV community, uh, you know, the AIDS com the AIDS. Um, epidemic. It was more about the uh, the gay community and how this was impacting them. Because the reason this program shut down primarily was uh, not just because of the number of people that were applying, but because of the type of people that were applying to be part of this medical marijuana program. So it's important to talk about these things. In 1977, President Jimmy Carter endorsed decriminalization, telling Congress penalties against possession of a drug should not be more damaging to an individual than the use of the drug itself. And where they are, they should be changed. During his first year in office, the Senate Judiciary Committee voted to decriminalize up to one ounce of marijuana. In 1980, President Reagan placed more emphasis on enforcing marijuana laws. He deemed pot as probably the most dangerous drug in America today. And then possession of 100 marijuana plants received the same penalty as possession of 100 grams of heroin. And so during this time, the Anti-Drug Abuse Act was established with a three strikes and you're out policy requiring life sentences for repeat drug offenders and providing for the death penalty for drug kingpins. We're going to end this episode right here in the 1980s because I want to start off with the Reagan era when we come back next week. But what we have discovered in this time together is that since, you know, 10,000 years ago, cannabis has been medicine. We've seen how research over research has shown us that there are so many benefits of this plant. We actually used it as medicine until the 1930s. And then when the Marijuana Tax Act came around and this reefer madness, um, it led us to where we are now. It's been demonized. It's been taxed. It's been a financial gain for some. And it's been a reason to keep Hispanic, African-Americans, and other minorities incarcerated and criminalized. So we will start next week with 1980s and the Reagan era and see how much has changed. See you guys next week on The Kushners. Okay.